from the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. This is In Conversation With. Supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Presented by Stuart Alford and produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth. Hello there, I'm Stuart Alford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, here with another edition of the In Conversation with podcast, and I've got two very exciting guests. In part two, we'll be meeting Icarus Allen from Plymouth Marine Laboratory, who's got some fascinating stories to tell about research and all the things going on with the National Centre for Marine Autonomy. But in part one, very similar field in some ways, and I'll explain why later. I'm just absolutely honoured to be joined by Professor Oliver Hanneman, who's the lead at Brain Tumor Research. Hello, Professor Hanneman. Hello, nice yeah. to meet you. Are you okay if I call you Oliver? If I yes. keep calling you Professor Hanneman, it's going to be a very long no, interview. No, 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 Oliver. I call <clears throat> you Stuart, if that's okay. You can call me whatever you like. I've been called a lot worse. I spent 17 years in the police service. I've been called some very interesting things in my time. So Stuart's fine. Thank you. You currently are the lead at Brain Tumor Research, which is where I met you, and I'll come to that later. But I think people will detect from your name and accent that you're not originally from Plymouth. You're not a Janna. What brought you here? I'm from Germany originally, so I came over actually probably 16 years ago. So I came over to take up a chair in the Pendula Medical School. I think it was just the right time. I was looking for a new challenge. The kids were on the right age to move, and so I was offered the chair of clinical neurobiology, how it was called then, and that made me move over. It wasn't a straight path, was it? Because I was looking at your CV. You've been to the Institute of Neurological Sciences in Glasgow, John Hopkins, and Harvard Medical School. So you've got a fair old CV there. Yeah, that was during medical school. So I did rotations in Hopkins and Harvard Medical School in Glasgow. Some of the best names in the world. You're also all right. You must know what you're doing. Well, it was quite tough, actually. So I did some surgical rotations in Hopkins and Harvard, and you were on every other night. So you didn't sleep more than an hour or two every other night. Really? You did that for two or three months. You knew in the end what you were doing. So this is the point where you tell me you're only 21 or something, and you were there. <laughs> that had an effect. <laughs> and then I decided not to become a surgeon. <laughs> yeah, was it really? Well, I was going to ask, so why the transition from that into brain tumour research? I was a neurologist. I trained as a neurologist after medical school. And in Germany or on the continent, probably, the neurologists cover brain tumours. It's a bit different from the UK, where it's brain tumours are dealt with by clinical oncologists and neurosurgeons. On the continent, it's neurologists and neurosurgeons. Right, OK. And what particularly drove you into that and particularly brain tumor research i mean which must be fascinating but also tough i guess i think it's, it's driven by the need because i'm a clinician and so i'm a part-time researcher and part-time clinician so it's probably 50 50 ish so i see patients with brain tumors and i realized that the need of new therapies and new diagnostics and that what drove me into the research in that area Okay. And do you still have any face-to-face contact with patients? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have still 50, maybe a little bit less than 50%, 40, 60, so 40. Okay. And does that inspire you still when you see this? And that's what drives you on to keep wanting to do the research? Yeah, yeah. It brings an important facet to the research because you're not doing research for the purpose of it, but you're doing research with the aim for patient benefit. And we were lucky. Maybe we come later to the process of research. It's quite laborious and very different from the clinical work. It's less guideline-driven. You have intellectual freedom. You wander around. You design something. You fail. You discuss it and you design it again. So it's quite creative. So it's a very lengthy process. Discovery in research takes much, much longer than people think. Well, that's what I was getting at. I mean, laborious is a very interesting word. I didn't want to use it because it sounds as if it's boring. It's not boring, but there's a lot of long, hard work between results on there. It's not an instant thing. No, it takes ages. And I just wanted to give you an example where it illustrates that it's worthwhile. uh, It's probably the best if the research is driven by clinical questions or medical questions. So we discovered a new drug target for brain tumors in 2008, and then we were lucky to drive that into a clinical trial. And we're just doing that again. So what we discover in the lab will occasionally and hopefully more and more, make it into the clinic. And that's what drives me. So it's not only the discovering something is is satisfying enough, but discovering something which then goes into the clinic is double satisfactory. But that's 15 years between 2008 and now. So you've got to be dogged, I guess, in your pursuit. You've got to be driven to keep going and going and going. 
Yeah, but it's an interesting process because it's not that you're dogged at a boring process. It's you design something, you fail, it's quite creative. And you do additional experiments, you test additional hypotheses, you challenge your hypothesis, you go to meetings, discuss it with colleagues, then you design a clinical trial and go into a clinical trial. So it's a very interactive, creative process. So you don't need right. to be dogged. I think you're driven by itself. Yeah. If it makes sense. Sounds fascinating. And there's some incredible stuff going on there. I mean, I was absolutely privileged to have a, well, two now tours of the brain tumor research facilities at Darrowford. And in the same week, a tour of Plymouth Marine Laboratories. And and that's why Icarus is going to join us in part two of the interview. Because Mm. what I was struck by was the very same thing happened in both places within a week, was I met people from all over the world who were doing this incredible research work and when I asked them, what are you doing here in Plymouth? They looked at me as if I was mad and said, well, this is where it's happening. This is world class right here in this field. This is where it's happening. Mm. Is that what brought you here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I came over when the medical school was quite young and there were no red tapes. Yeah. I could pick my area of interest and develop the Brain Tumor Research Center. And we are one of four brain tumor research centers funded by Brain Tumor Research, one of the largest charities funding that in the UK, which is heavily dependent on donations. And last count of nationalities in our brain tumor center is 10 or 11. Mm. So we have 10 or 11 different Different nationalities nationalities working in the brain tumor research center in Plymouth. Yeah, it's just fascinating. And Plymouth is, well, the West Country, but Plymouth particularly, is very self-deprecating. And we're very, oh, it's just little old Plymouth and it's just little us. You know, we're not very proud or we don't extol our virtues very easily around the world. Do you think that's changing? Do you think we'll still continue now to attract top talent to come here because of the work that's happening here and maybe at the marine laboratories? Yeah, I think so. More and more people recognize what excellent work we're doing. And as I said, we have one of four centers of excellence of brain tumor research in the UK. The others are Imperial, UCL and ICR. So I think we are in a good company. Yeah. So Plymouth is in a good company. And we've been the center of excellence now for eight, nine years. Yeah. I was lucky enough, as I say, to have a tour, and I have to admit, there was an incentive for me to turn up in that I was invited to meet Caprice, the supermodel. He's your patron, isn't she? <laughs> she is, and yeah. I had my photo with Caprice, and my friends did point out that in the Herald, when the photos were released, you know, every photo of her was me sort of leading in, you know, oh, look. But she was lovely, isn't she? Because she suffered with a brain tumor herself, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she did. And she suffered from the most common primary brain tumor, which is a meningioma, and I think it's public, so I'm allowed to say that. And yeah. That's the main topic of our research, will be focused on low-grade brain tumors and mostly meningiomas. So that's an area which is of immediate direct interest for Caprice. And I think yeah. she visited Plymouth twice. Yeah. yeah. And there's a photo bobbing when she is sitting at the microscope. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she was great. I mean, she's lovely and she just wants to help, doesn't she? And she was saying about, I remember you, I think it was you talking to her about samples and where they come from and how you test them because you need samples to work on. And she said, did you get my brain tumor? And you're like, well, no. And she said, I wish you got my freaking tumor. She said, you know, she just wanted it, didn't she? Yeah. But she was great. And I was interested also because during the tour, I went around with this guy who was a really modest, lovely guy. And he was just, you know, I asked him what he did. And he said he was a journalist. And that's how he was interested in the science behind it. And I'd spent an hour in this guy's company. And then we get to a little plaque that said, this wing was opened by Benjamin Mee of We Bought a Zoo. And I said to him, oh, look, Benjamin Mee opened this wing. And he said, yes, I did. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're Benjamin Mee. Yeah. And he's a great advocate too, isn't he, of everything yes, you're yes. doing up there? Yeah, I think his wife died of a brain tumor. She did, sadly. Yeah. 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 And he was very open about that. And I know he really supports you and the science that was there. He's fascinated because he was a scientific journalist, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 yes. And I think he's done that to us twice or three times. Coming back to you, that Plymouth is a bit undersells itself. On every lab tour, and we do a couple a year, we have people saying, oh, I didn't really know that Plymouth has such amazing facilities. Well, I was the same. So that's the thing, isn't it? I always think I'm really privileged in my job because I go and see these amazing things. And what I really wish is that I had Devon on my shoulder everywhere I go so I could say to people, look at this. Look at this amazing stuff happening here. And I go and tell everyone. And it was just incredible to see it, as well as to meet Caprice and Benjamin Mee. And things. But you also met someone reasonably famous, didn't you? Were you telling me a royal? Yes. When we opened the building, the Dairport Research Facility, we showed Princess Anne around. And somehow I ended up walking her through the building and I chatted to her probably 10, 15 minutes. And I was amazed how informed she is and how eloquent. I think she asks really sensible questions, almost like a scientist. I was really impressed. She's a very bright lady. And in fact, she opened the National Centre for Marine Autonomy, which I will be asking Icarus Allen about in the second part of this interview. So it's a good link. Thank you for that bridge. Now, I heard her speak and she's a very, very 
eloquent lady. I remember during the tour, you told me that you used an example that with enough samples and enough money and enough research, you can find cures or preventions for these things. And the example you gave that caught early, breast cancer is now largely survivable because it's had so much money and science applied to it and you feel that you could do exactly the same with the tumours you're working on if you had enough money and enough samples that must frustrate you mustn't it don't you think I could do more if I could just get more money and do you find that frustrating is there something you wish you could say to government yeah definitely brain tumour research is doing a very good job there there are very good lobbyists for brain tumour funding in the UK And as you said, breast cancer or leukemia, especially childhood leukemia, have much improved survival because of funding which went into it. And the brain tumor research funding is still lagging behind, but it's picking up. And that's partly due to the lobbying of brain tumor research. You probably met the people from brain tumor research. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's an APPG initiated by brain tumor research. The secretariat is supported by brain tumor research. They have reported, they have created reports for the government on multiple occasions summarizing the facts of brain tumor research funding and the needs. I think they are an excellent lobbying organization as well as funder because they fund four centers. And their model of funding that they fund centers, which allows you to develop ideas and follow them up over a longer period and develop people over a longer period, get them hooked into brain tumor research, develop them as a researcher. That's part of the funding model from brain tumor researchers. So it's not short-term projects. They fund centers, which are strictly peer-reviewed. So there's quality control every year and harsh quality (laughs) control every two and a half, three years is the midterm, and then a cranial review every five years. So there's harsh quality control. Rightly, because it's money that's being given. Yeah. Yeah. But if you do it right, you have the opportunity to develop a center, develop expertise, attract people, and develop people. Sorry, if you can't answer this question, I apologize, but how much does it cost? I mean, I saw some pretty amazing bits of kit up there, and I get the impression they're not cheap. As you mentioned, you've got all these different students and scientists from around the world. What does it cost to run that in Plymouth for a year? It's very difficult to say, and we share the equipment across all research groups, so there is no brain tumor research center microscope or Oliver Hahnemann microscope. So the last microscope we've bought is half a million pounds, so so over 563,000 pounds. But it's shared between researchers. We do Parkinson research, antibiotic research, and brain tumors. And that was funded by the MRC. But brain tumor research calculated that a day of research in each center cost roughly 2,700 pounds. 2,700 pounds a day? Yeah. Wow. So it's not cheap, but it's very vital and important work. It is. Are you close to any sort of breakthroughs you can tell us about? Are you finding things you think we're really onto something here? We're honing in on something. Anything you can share on that? So I don't think there is the breakthrough. There are always small steps in research. As I said, we did one clinical trial based on a discovery we made in 2008. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. clinical trial was negative, but negative clinical trials are also as important they, as positive. them off. Yeah, you cross you, them off. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Doing another clinical trial now, which will probably start um, end of this year. We're doing biomarkers to stratify patients into certain groups which respond to a certain treatment or biomarkers that show treatment. For example, let's take, everybody knows, PSA for prostate cancer. Mm. So if that goes down, you see that you respond probably. And we're discovering something similar for brain tumors. So So in treatment terms, that is. So something that you can apply a treatment and it attacks the brain tumor. No, the biomarker shows that, we hope it shows that the tumor responds. Yes, sorry, that's what I mean. So the marker shows that whatever you're doing, whatever drug you're applying is working. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we aim for. So we have a biomarker now which shows the aggressiveness of the tumor. So we hope that it will also show the response of the tumor. Ah, I see. Right. I get it. Sorry, I am not (laughs) the brightest bulb in the box. I watched your presentation. And the first two slides I was with you, I thought, this is incredible scientific stuff. And I've got to be honest, after that, you kind of lost me, except to say that I thought, this is incredible. And I'm just so glad there's people like you who are bright enough to work on this stuff to help make things better, because it is incredibly complex, isn't it? I mean, the human brain is incredibly complex. The subject is complex. The science you're using to tackle the subject is complex. Does it keep you up at night? Do you find yourself waking up thinking about it? Or are you, after all this time, kind of able to go away from the lab at the end of the day and go, relax? My wife says I'm very good at relaxing, but it keeps me up at night. And the more pressure there is, the more you're awake at night. I think about it all the time, but if I need to switch off, I can switch off, I think. And what do you do to switch off, if you don't mind me asking? What's your release from work? 
I do cycle a bit and I started to do a bit of photography. I'm part of a camera club. In the camera club, most people are pensioners and they have all <laughs> the time in the world to take good pictures. <laughs> Me being quite busy, I never win a competition. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to do a camera study on your work or something. No, no, don't, because then you get your work in and you won't get to relax. So if you could ask government for one thing, what would it be? I'm afraid it's simple, more money for brain tumor research. Yeah. yeah, I seem to remember you said you need more samples. Samples indicate that someone's got a brain tumor, so it's difficult. And some of them are quite rare, so you don't get a lot of samples to work on. I mean, that's thankfully they're rare, but on the other hand, you need the samples to do the work. Yeah, but you can organize it with money. So we have a brain tumor biobank in Plymouth. We probably have five to 600 samples, which are quite deeply characterized. So we have, we genotype them so we know the genes involved in those tumor samples. We have some clinical data and we get samples from Bristol and Plymouth. So, as you know, Plymouth is the Southwest Regional Center for Brain Tumors and we get samples from Bristol, as I said. I think if you have the funding, you can organize biobanks. Yeah. Okay. So in the end, it comes down to money. It doesn't everything, sadly. I mean, yeah. Mm. So, and do you get any government money or is it all privately funded through brain tumor research? No, no, no. We have different funding sources. So we have NIHR, brain tumor research, and we have MRC. That's the microscope I mentioned earlier. So we have very different funding sources. Roughly, we double the funding we get from brain tumor research from other funders. Okay. Yeah. Because brain tumor research allows us to produce data which then shows excellence, makes which attracts eligible. funding. Attracts yeah, yeah. funding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think a lot of charities work on that sort of model, don't they, that they can match fund if they can get money in the first place, you can kind of get more money. And is there anything businesses can do to get involved and support you? I think Brain Tumor Research has a lot of initiatives where business can get involved, be a fundraising or make a charity of the year. I think the best way of business to get involved is contacting Brain Tumor Research. And support the charity directly that will lead to the money you need. And what do you want your legacy to be, you know, when you retire, which hopefully won't be for a while because we need you at the helm? Would you think, that's what I want to say I did, I achieved. What would your legacy be? That's difficult. I think we have enough research results which will remain and have made an impact. What makes me most proud if young researchers come to me and say, oh, working with you really developed me. Yeah. And I improved. So if you see that something which exists in a person for after when you stop, so I think that's the most satisfying. So if so I will continue if, when yes, you retire. If, if I retire and it continues on itself because I educated a bunch of people and made them continue what I started, that would be the legacy I wish. Yeah, I'm sure. And have you seen big changes from when you started working brain tumor research? Would you say we've come a long way or is it so microscopically kind of small steps? No, I do think we have come a long way, and that's nationally and internationally. Nationally, because the success of brain tumor research lobbying and the centers, so I think there's significantly more money, still not enough, mm. um, lagging behind other cancers, but there's more money in brain tumor research, more results, more clinical trials, with finally benefits for patients. I feel there is a momentum mm. for brain tumor research, and I feel it's mostly triggered by the charity brain tumor research. Great. And Cancer Research UK. But I think brain tumor research has a very big part in it. And very specific part in it because of what it is. Do you think survivability rates or diagnostic rates or whatever are better because of the work you've done in the time you've done it? If you mean with you, all of us, all of us brain tumor researchers, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mean you personally, but you're too modest to say even if you did. But I get it. I meant in the work you've done as a group over time, you think, you know, brain tumors are more easy to detect and more survivable because of that work. Yes, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're settled here in Devon now? Yeah, 16 years. 16 years. you got family here? Yeah, partly here. So the kids are grown up. So my daughter's in Japan at the moment. I just came back from Japan. Did you? Well, Monday. Um, um, what was it like? People tell me it's a massive cultural shock, Japan, because it's so different from the West. Is that true? Or did you yeah, it is. I've been before. The first time I've been was 25 years ago. And so it changed a lot since I've been there first. It is very busy. If you go to cities like Tokyo or Osaka, you get noises and screens from every direction. But there are also the countryside was very beautiful and very fond of tradition. It's a modern country with an appreciation and visibility of tradition. Yes, I knew a Japanese lady. They're very, very respectful of history, of age, of people older themselves. Mm. And I understand they've got a lot of different 
terms to address people and it's mm. kind of the etiquette of getting the right way to address someone because of their seniority or whatever is important to yeah. them and you say you were visiting your daughter is she working out there she was studying oh wow and just the daughter you got other children my son is in excellent medical school is in Truro at the moment all oh, right yeah. so he's going to follow in your footsteps or a different branch of medicine or Probably different branch. I think he wants to become a pediatrician at the moment. We'll see how it goes. Anything could happen. I bet it helps having a dad who's a doc. That's the thing. Yeah, but as is my wife. He has been oh, right. prime from both of us. Ah, right. So you've got a very medical family. Do you mind me asking what's your wife doing? It's a GP. She's a GP. Mm. Ah, right. Fantastic. You're obviously settled here, so you obviously like it. What do you love about Devon and the West Country? I like the countryside and the politeness of the English people. And actually, I like the NHS. The NHS is a perfect system. It's in crisis at the moment. So it's a perfect system in crisis. So I think there are lots of things which I and the whole family like about the UK. Now, that's an interesting point. You know, looking at it from only ever knowing the NHS, I would say, oh, my God, what a disaster. It's all falling apart. You know, is it a terrible system? But you have seen it from your experience of other healthcare systems in the world. And you think the NHS is still a great organization. It is an organization with huge potential. And if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have said it's a very good system, more efficient than other more expensive systems on the continent. I think there's no doubt that it's in crisis at the moment. But still, the system for itself has a potential of being a superb health system. And do you think it's fixable then, the NHS? Or are we going to end up privatized and having our healthcare all private? No, I think it's fixable. Good. Good, because, you know, the NHS is something that people are very, very proud of. And silly question, your work is partly NHS, partly the charity work, partly the researcher, is it? Yeah, so I'm university employed, but the university recharges my clinical activity to the hospital trust. Ah, right. Okay. And I suppose just to really wrap up, you are leading world-class research here in Plymouth, aren't you? And it's just exciting. And I want to tell the world about it. Do you think that's going to continue here? We're not going to lose these amazing facilities. No, no. My aim is that my legacy will be that there is enough critical mass, and I think there will be, of staff which will continue what we've done. The facilities, the Derford Research Facility with the equipment, and we need to renew bits of equipment now and then, which is not cheap, but I think we will succeed and continue on that level. So I think it's difficult enough to become a centre of excellence. It's probably even more difficult to remain a centre of excellence, but I think we will succeed. Well, I'm really pleased to hear it because, like I say, privileged to have been to visit, privileged to have met you. I wish we had more time because I've read your CV and it is extensive and really great to have you here in the city leading on incredible world-class stuff. So in part two, I'll speak to someone who's also leading incredible research in the city and that's Icarus Allen and join us for that. But for now, end of part one, thank you so much, Professor Oliver Hanneman. Thank you for joining me and thank you for all you're doing. Thank you very much. The conversation will continue. But first, Chamber Chief's quickfire questions. Hello there, and welcome back to the Chamber Chief's Quickfire Questions section of the In Conversation With podcast, where I get to meet some interesting characters from around the region, ask them some very rapid-fire questions, put them under the spotlight, grill them, interrogate them. I am an ex-police officer, after all. I'm really pleased to say that joining us today is John Batten from Four Celebrations. Come in, John. Hello, Stuart. How's it going? Yeah, all good. Thank you. Look, thanks so much for giving up your time and agreeing to be a victim. I mean, an interviewee on this fantastic (laughs) podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm very happy to be on it. So now I'm looking at the screen. This won't translate well for an audio podcast, but I can see in the background you've got some sort of technical bit of DJing type kit behind you. Yeah, this is my DJ console where I work my magic when I'm doing gigs, weddings, birthdays and corporate gigs. And you've got a glitter ball above your head. Of course. Doesn't everybody? Yeah, Yeah, doesn't everybody have a glitter ball in their living room. Tell us, John, what is Four Celebrations? This is a business that I've been working on really just over the last few months. I've been a DJ for quite a few years. I decided I wanted to find my niche in DJing and events and mainly weddings, really. And for Celebrations, it covers everything that I do from DJing to hiring equipment for weddings, as well as emceeing and coordinating weddings. Oh my word, that's a bit of stress. <laughs> no, it's not really isn't too bad. It works quite well. Emceeing works really well with DJing because it means that I'm there 
all day getting to know the guests at the wedding and they're getting to know me and creating a real nice connection with everybody and as a result it means that we have a great party at the end of the day well i'm all for that so this should be a doddle for you no pressure just before we start the two minute thing you're a farmer that's a long way from farming i know i know if i had the camera turned you'd be able to see the farm out the window oh so you're still a farmer yeah i am i've taken a step away from the farm where my brother-in-law has taken on my full-time role there and now i am mostly doing projects and maintenance and working it around my new business well, good luck with the business. So look, we've got to get down to the meat of it. Two minutes with the quick okay. fire questions with the buzzer. There it is. I'm going to ask you lots of questions. Two minutes and your time starts now. Chamber Chief's quick fire questions. What's your favourite part of the job? Oh, connecting with people and just having a great party. Where are you based? Brentor near Tavistock. Who's the most inspirational person you've met? Oh, that's a good one. Um... Okay, who would you like to meet? Um, more clients. <laughs> Good answer, just on the buzzer there. Uh, best thing about Devon? Um, the more. Of course. Worst thing about Devon? Um, the more. There isn't one. Yeah, well, I suppose that's true. It's good and bad, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The best business support organisation in Devon, no pressure. Oh, um, Chamber of Commerce. Obviously. Hey, brilliant, brilliant answer. You're, have you got a claim to fame? Um, well, apart from DJing at lots of weddings, I perhaps not. No, I met Prince Charles once and Camilla. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, uh, who supports you the most? Um, my wife and friends. Okay, so on the subject of your wife, what is your, what's your wedding anniversary? Uh, 24th of May. Well done. Colour of her eyes? Um, greeny bluey. Okay, cat or dog? Dogs. Ah, brilliant answer. Favourite pastime? Um, running, ish. Football or rugby? Neither. Oh, controversial. <laughs> Gonna go controversial. That inny or outy? Inny. <laughs> yeah, we haven't had an outy yet. Beer or wine? Uh, beer mostly. What makes you laugh? Um, beer. <laughs> what makes you cry? Sorry. What makes what? you cry? Uh, no beer. No beer. Good one. Good answer. Favorite singer. Oh, don't ask me that. It's the worst thing to ask a DJ. F favorite lyric? Um, Mamma Mia, here we go again. Oh, terrible. Suit and tie or jeans and t-shirt? Uh, suit and tie. Oh, unusual. I didn't think you were going to say that. Yeah. Oh, and that's the time. Time up. <laughs> Who knew that a farming DJ or a DJ what farms says that a suit and tie over jeans and t-shirt? I know. Well, that's what makes me different to most DJs. I'm the smartest DJ out there. I always have to be the smartest in the room. Hey, look, do you know, John, I've got to be honest, please don't take offence to this. When I read your bio, I thought, I'm going to have a very unusual chap come on this quick <laughs> really? question. But it's been a real pleasure to meet you. And I think you've got a really fascinating business model there. Oh, thank you very much, Stuart. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In conversation with, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, back to the conversation. Hello there, I'm Stuart Alford and welcome back to part two of the In Conversation With Research Special. Earlier we interviewed Dr Oliver Hanneman from Brain Tumor Research and I'm absolutely delighted now part two to be joined by Professor Icarus Allen who is the Chief Executive of Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Welcome Icarus. Thank you very much, I'm yeah. delighted to be here. Well thank you and I mean I should explain how this kind of came about really because I was lucky enough, thank you to you, having a tour of your facilities, incredible facilities up on the hoe and in the same week or so I had a tour of brain tumour research mm -hmm. and what I found exactly the same sort of people there doing incredible mm. things that nobody knew about world class stuff and when I spoke to these PhD students and what have you working there and I asked them what are you doing here mm -hmm. they looked at me as if I was mad and said mm -hmm. This is where it's happening. In the world, this is where it's happening. I mean, you must be really proud of that. But do people know? I think there is an element that marine science in Plymouth is a bit of a 
hidden secret in spite of the fact that with marine science in the UK to some extent started in Plymouth with the Marine Biological Association in the late Victorian period. Oh, is it back as long as that? Yeah, and Plymouth is now home to more marine research scientists than anywhere else in the country. So this is the critical mass, the centre for marine, particularly marine biological research in the UK and a major player on the global stage. So what sort of research is going on, not just with you, but I mean in Plymouth and around the region? Why is Plymouth the centre for all this sort of marine research? That's a very challenging question to ask, basically, because there's so much of it going on. Right. <laughs> right. What is going on? Yeah, Tell us about going it. On. Well, I suppose the origins of research in Plymouth is really around marine biology, mm. the understanding of marine ecosystems, mm. particularly plankton ecosystems. And we look here at everything from viruses through to fish across the city. Mm through plankton, zooplankton. We look at the seabed fauna and ecology, both in the shallow seas and in the deep sea. There is some of the longest time series of measurements of marine biology in the world in Plymouth. Which is important if you're looking at change, I guess. It's vitally important. There's a station we call E1, which was originally England 1, which was started, I think, in 1901, if memory serves me correctly, by the MBA, Marine Biological Association. And that's still running today. PML samples it now and there is a boy out there taking regular samples which we co-run with the Met Office Right, and that has time series of temperature going back you know 120 years now Wow! so it's a phenomenal record and shows the generic warming trend all the way from 1900 to the present day Are you allowed to say where it is or will it get vandalised? Is it outside the sound somewhere? It's well outside the sound it's about 10 to 12 miles south of the Ediston Light. Oh, it's a long way that, out, because that that's long... 10 to 12 miles out itself, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so that's out. So right it's almost out on the edge of the shipping lanes. Right. It's marked on the chart. Okay. So yeah. no, no, you, you but not something you up, can just pop by. <laughs> pick it up on AIS. At this present point in time, the buoy is being replaced, but a new one we're expecting to go out in the next fortnight. Mm. Okay? So yeah. that's working with the Met Office. And then we're also sampling much closer to shore at a station called L4, which I think the L originally stood for local. And that has some of the longest time series of plankton and zooplankton. These go back to the late 1980s, and we sample that every week. Then we sample the seabed around there for benthic fauna. And then we also have an atmospheric observatory at Penley Point. So we're measuring the climactically active gases, we're measuring ship emissions, we're measuring nitrogen oxides, we're measuring carbon dioxide, dimethyl sulfide, ozone, a few other things. So we've got this unique combination here of in-water sampling of biology, we've got this unique sampling of atmospheric Mm. components, we're sampling the seabed for the biology, we're sampling the physical environment around it, so the Mm. water temperature, the salinity, how the water's moving. We're looking at the optics, so how light is penetrated through the column. Mm. And then we're backing this up with then numerical modelling. Mm. So we can model how the tides are moving things around. We can model how the biology grows within that system. And um, also with satellite Earth observation. Right. So that we're using satellites to look at the surface of the ocean and how that's evolving. And we can see how the plankton are growing. We can see how it's changing. And all of this is giving us the evidence to show how biodiversity is changing in the environment, how the climate is impacting on biodiversity. I was going to ask, it's not a flippant question, but why? Why all this work? I don't mean that flippantly. So you're doing incredible work, data analysing all this from all these different sources. Why are we doing it? Why is it important? Well, I think there's three fundamental questions that PML addresses in very broad brush sense. Firstly is, how does the system work? And we're really thinking about marine ecosystems, by which I mean the physical environment, the chemical environment and the biology and how it all interacts with each other. And indeed how it links to humans. Mm. But firstly is how does the system work? So the first thing is that fundamental understanding of what causes plankton to grow, what causes the shifts in community structure, what causes changes from year to year. The second one is the influence of humans on it. Mm-hmm. So what's the anthropogenic contribution to that? How right. have we changed it? What, most cases, damage have we done? How has human activity, whether that's directly through things like fishing or nutrients, nitrates and things coming down the river, impacted the system, right. or indirectly through the aggregative effects of climate? So it's understanding how it's changing and predicting how it might change in the future. And then right. the third really vitally important thing is understanding the consequences And what can we do to prevent? What can we do to mitigate? 
What can we do to manage it better? Yeah. So it's really, it's about understanding how does the system work? It's like, what have we done to break it? How do we fix it? Right. And well, that's, <laughs> and, that's you know, the that, big question. That, that's really the key of it. Okay. Is it fixable? Because I think, you know, a lot of people are quite scared. I won't say doom mongering. That's not mm. the right term. But a lot of people saying it's too late. We've stuffed the planet. We've gone past that tipping point. Do you feel that? Or do you think there are things we can and should do? I think there's lots of things that we can and should do. I think if we don't do anything, that's the point where we really get into trouble. But we do need to take a good, long, hard look at what we do. We've got to decide what we value. Mm. We've got to start thinking about what ecosystems should look like. Mm. You know, And I think there's a difference between what marine landscapes or terrestrial landscapes should look like if there were no people <laughs> versus the ones that we've created over hundreds or thousands of years of interference yeah and we need to get a balance you know this is a very personal view i always think we should rigorously protect certain areas and yeah. actually keep humans out of them and allow them to develop and grow but there has to be a trade-off with that which yeah. means that full access by people to other bits is yeah. required. I'm sure various people who can debate this till the cows come home and not, <laughs> but not everybody an, will agree with it. It's me. an interesting point, isn't mm-hmm. it? I can't remember who said it, but somebody was asked that what we're doing is going to destroy the planet. And they said, no, the planet will be fine. It's the people. Yes. We, we're going to destroy our own ecosystem that sustains ourselves. Yes. I mean, that is terrible, isn't it? Does it scare you? Do you think what we're doing, or are you more philosophical about it and more practically engaged in doing something about it? Well, I'm philosophical about it, and I believe we need to be practically engaged to try and solve the problems. Mm. You know, we need to look at the way we farm, we need to look at the way we fish, Mm. we need to think about what we can do to restore ecosystems, to create better biodiversity to protect the fundamental cycles of carbon and nitrogen and potentially enhance carbon storage Mm. you know there's these what they call nature-based solutions yes positive nature as opposed to trying to be uh, sort of take everything out of the man-made environment yeah nature-based solutions have a big part of this we need to change our behavior in the way we use resources we need to recycle more Mm. we need to frankly use less oil and gas Mm. and we're all in varying degrees culpable and hypocritical around this and it becomes a very difficult ethical discussion you know even in your own head you're talking about us changing our relationship yeah. with the sea and the land aren't you yes. I, yeah i think it was sitting bull who said the difference between the native american sort of indigenous mm. people and the white settlers were the settlers believed they had rights over the land and the indigenous uh, people felt they had obligations to the land yes. and i think we've got to get to that point haven't we where we feel our only sort of purpose our obligation is to sustain it yes I think that's quite right. I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Well, he was more eloquent than me. I'd love to claim it was me. (laughs) Stuart Helford once said, no, I don't think I've said anything worthier of note at any time in my entire life. I can remember when other people say stuff that I think, God, that's clever. I wish I'd thought of that. So do you think the world-class work that's going on here will carry on? Can we continue to attract world-class talent? Because that's an issue that lots of businesses, and I'm aware I've got a largely business audience here, lots of businesses struggling to get talent to come at all, but also because of the challenges of the West Country and it hasn't always been seen as the place to live and work? Or are you fairly confident you've got the workforce you need going forward? I think it's a mixed picture, actually. I think when it comes to biological sciences, chemical sciences and things, we're a very strong attractor because of the reputation of Plymouth, the reputation Mm. of the institutes here, and indeed the wider southwest ecosystem of marine science in Exeter and Weymouth and other places. So there's a big attraction for people to come here. Mm. The university runs some of the best marine courses in the country, Mm. and that is a really strong source of high-quality talent coming into the city Mm. that we can then recruit and build Mm. on. The bigger challenge is when it comes to the more IT digitally-based science. The sort of support network around that, I guess. Well, about 50% of the science we do at PML is what I call digital science. It's based around satellite Earth observation. It's based around remote sensing. Right. It's based around manipulating large data sets, using high-performance computing, using artificial intelligence and machine learning to try and understand the patterns and trends in the data. And attracting people into it is not so difficult, but keeping them because they have skills that are highly marketable in other yeah. businesses. And so there's a big challenge there in terms of creating and keeping people i think the one area where we're perhaps not making enough use of is apprenticeships in this right, in yeah. actually bringing 
people in as researchers and sort of having research apprenticeships. Right. You know, I think sort of using degree level apprenticeships and then training people on. Yeah. And I'm not talking about PhDs, but actually sort of bringing people forward in the working world of research. Right. Yeah. You know, because a PhD is a great thing for people to learn about and learn aspects of research, but you still then have to train them in the world of work afterwards yeah. and apply so, it, make it commercially would, valuable. And I'd like yeah. to you know, actually do something that allows them to do both yeah. simultaneously, I think would be a much more structured way of doing it. But suppose, again, this is a very personal view. Yeah, I suppose mm. where you're fortunate is that the workforce coming through the younger generations mm. want to work for organisations with purpose. They yes. don't want to just go and make some widgets in a factory and yeah. then clock off 50 years later with a carriage clock. They actually want to do something with purpose. And you're doing that with really vital importance. And also, you combine that with, you know, I've heard for all my life that I've lived in Plymouth since I was eight. Plymouth's a city with potential. I'm genuinely, in the last few years hearing it's a city that's realising its potential. So I think you can combine those two and hopefully attract and retain good people who see what a wonderful environment it is. I've been in Plymouth over 30 years now. It's changed fundamentally in the time that Mm. I've been here. And as you say, it's gone from a city with potential. It feels like a city with momentum. Yeah. You know, there's an awful lot going on with industry. There's an awful lot going on with research. There's a huge amount of effort going on to try and draw the two together and get the benefits, particularly through things like the Marine Business Technology Cluster and through the Smart Sound and hopefully going forward through the Freeport. Well, I'm going to come on to those, but may I just ask you, so what brought you to Plymouth? 30 years. So clearly you came here when you were five, he says. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Six, maybe. Six, maybe. (laughs) What brought you to Plymouth? I was in my mid-twenties. I'd done a master's course in physical oceanography in North Wales at Bangor. Mm -hmm. And I was unemployed. I was interested in numerical modelling. Right. So this is using computer models to predict the oceans and understand them. Well, it's using computer models like the Met Office use weather models yeah, yeah. Okay. Know, to understand and make forecasts, mm. which was a very new technology yeah. at the time. And basically, I ended up at PML because that was where I got a job. Yeah. I went into an organisation that has given me a great deal of opportunity to develop and grow mm. over 30 years. So I went in at a very junior level and... Now you're CEO. Yeah, you know, 30 years later ended up as chief executive. Do you get to do research yourself now or are you purely running the organisation? These days I purely run the organisation. I was an active research scientist for about 25 years and I made a sort of transition into much more of a management role. You know, my job is to do science vicariously. My job is to enable... People to be able to do it. To be able to do it. So it's to provide the environment, provide the cultural environment, provide the physical environment, provide the support systems to make sure that, you know, the world-class researchers we've got at PML can do do their their jobs and do the best possible research. Well, you're doing an amazing Mm. job. I mean, we've recently, haven't we, had the National Centre for Marine Autonomy open at PML? Yeah, I mean, it's a joint venture. But the site is... Well, certainly where I came when... I'm going to name drop when Princess Anne came and opened it. I was there. Yes, I mean, we've taken a lead on it, but it is a joint venture with the University of Plymouth and the Marine Biological Association. And it's really around using marine autonomy to revolutionise marine research. Mm. When I talk about marine autonomy, I'm talking about using vessels that are completely autonomous, Mm. don't have humans on board, and can either be driven from the shore or moving towards hopefully vessels that use artificial intelligence and so on so that mm. they can actually steer themselves and make operational decisions about where they go yeah you know there's a lot of expertise on that across the city mm. and an exemplar of that of course is the mayflower 400 ship yeah, that yeah. m subs built yeah. and took across the atlantic a couple of years ago yeah what we've been doing is building on the observing infrastructure the western channel observatory i talked about earlier in the long-term time series this is an ideal place to put in the sort of test bed for training marine autonomy testing the sensors testing the autonomous vessels because we've got high quality research measurements that are independent that you can trial it all against Mm. it's also very close to the shore with easy access Mm. you know the lep has funded communication systems for the smart sound yeah so there's a surface communication system that's been installed and there will be an underwater communication system 
coming. So this is the SmartSound Connect. And the idea then is that we can use this as a test bed for both research and, you know, just as importantly, industry to come and test autonomy and ah. you know create a critical mass in plymouth yeah. for marine autonomy well we should be the world center of marine autonomy i think we already are and i think we should just declare yes. we are but i hope we don't miss that opportunity because it is exciting we're perfectly placed aren't we britain's yes. ocean city right yeah. next to the atlantic smart sound everything we've we, got going on here yeah well we're doing our level best to try and <laughs> make sure that that happens yeah yeah and your own personal field i'm sorry i did read your bio and i've got to be honest i didn't really understand it what was your personal field <laughs> if i read this out i'm sorry i said what was your personal field i spent 25 years basically working on marine models of marine ecosystems right computer models effectively you reduce the marine ecosystem to mm. a set of equations which describe the growth and death of marine organisms and the physical transport of water. Right, okay. Right. Well, that I understand. And then the growth and death is obviously linked together yeah. because different things feed on each other and then it cycles with the supply of nutrients that the plankton need to grow and sunlight. And then So you get this layered set of mm. equations and then you put it in a physical transport model, so one of water movement, mm. and you can run it forward in time and it allows you to see how the plankton would grow and how that impacts on different parts of the food web firstly it's there to try and understand how marine ecosystems interact with each other Mm. and interact in the physical environments they are but also Mm. increasingly with a view to forecast whether that's short-term forecast like a operational weather forecast or as part of an earth system model because we work with the Met Office and other partners on the UK Earth System model as to how the marine biology will respond to climate change and how that feedback on the ocean as a carbon sink, because mm. the plankton are a big source of drawing down of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and also the dead plankton sink to the bottom of the ocean and that gives you the long-term storage of carbon in the ocean right. or part of it, okay. the biological pump. So it spans very local things like you know a pollution event around a fish farm at one scale to climate scale at the other yeah so we've been working as i say both to understand systems but also to predict systems and we've been working closely with the met office for a number of years on operational forecast systems okay so if you could ask for one big thing from government if you wanted one big change what's your big ask what's your big frustration i guess there are two things i suppose if i the short i'm only letting you have one but go on okay i'll give you another one there's two the security of funding for long-term observations right. is one big... I was going to ask how you funded. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, we do have a five-year rolling cycle of funding from the mm. National Environment Research Council to support our long-term observations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is constantly being squeezed in real terms. Of course, like everything, yeah. yeah. And there's a challenge then to try and automate more and more of it. But that's one, because, you know, the challenge often in research is funding the prosaic and not very exciting things you can always yeah. fund the exciting new stuff yeah, yeah. but funding the long prosaic term. things and keeping long-term things yeah. going is always a challenge but the really exciting thing you know if we want to make a game change is we have a concept of a boat we call oceanus mm-hmm. which is a sort of follow-on to the mayflower 400 and right this has come out of working with m subs but yeah. the idea of having a fully autonomous ocean-going research vessel that would be about 20 or so metres long and capable of doing a transect of the Atlantic, Mm -hmm. making automated measurements as she goes. You know, if you're asking what my big... (laughs) That's your big project. Before I put my hand in my pocket, Mm -hmm. what sort of money do you think we need to do that? Um, I think to get a basic concept vessel and do sea trials, you're looking at four to five million pounds, depending on how you instrument it. If you'd said three, I had it in my pocket. (laughs) Sorry. No, but that actually, I mean, uh, is obviously a shed load of money, but in terms of what it could achieve and in terms of marine things in themselves. When you consider that the last research vessel, the David Attenborough, I think, cost £200 million. Was that the Boaty McBoatface, the one which... Well, um, the one they didn't call Boaty Boaty McBoatface, yes. (laughs) Yes. So when you get this vessel, there won't be a public vote on how to name... Well, it's already got a name. The name Oceanus, which actually came from Brett Fenough at M-Subs. Oceanus was the name of the child born on the Mayflower. Was it? I did not Apparently know that. Apparently so, yes. Wow. So it's the child of the Mayflower. 
That is brilliant. That's mm. almost a good place to end. But <laughs> I will just ask you a couple of quick more questions because yeah, I just sure. want to learn a bit more mm. about Icarus. I mean, I mean, you're obviously passionate about what you do, and that comes over. Mm. But do you manage to get away from PML? Do you have things you do to relax, or are you constantly 100% of the time thinking about the organisation and what you can do next? I think when I was a research scientist, I was very much in that mode. Actually, I would try and compartmentalise it much more, and I've done yeah. much more of that as I get older. Yeah. When I'm working, I'm very much focused on it. Yeah. When I'm not working, I try and keep Leave it in the box. Because, yeah. you know, you can't do that. And I think as always the thing as chief executive, you've got to have a bit of gas in the tank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my gas is running dry at the moment, but I am yeah. coming up to a holiday. I get it. I mean, it's yeah. all down to you, isn't it? There's a weight of responsibility that I think some people don't really realise. It seems like, oh, if you're a CEO, it's easy because you're in charge. But actually, yeah. it's all down to you, ultimately. Isn't it, it is, yes. Yeah. You know, it all stands or falls on that. So yeah. what do you do when you escape... Well, I escape up the river. I live out in the country just outside Bear Alston, so right. it's nice Peaceful. up there. I do quite a lot of cooking and playing right. terrible electric guitar and uh, <laughs> bits of gardening. Are you a secret rock star, are you? Well, right? not really. Pottering around with grandchildren, right. you know, things like that. Walking the dog. And do you get out on the water? Are you a fan of the sea or are you not really a fan of being on it? You like studying I like, it? I like being out on the water. I mean, I'm looking. Trouble is, I never really get the opportunity to go out. All the other people at PML go on exciting trips. <laughs> yeah. You know, the people. And you're stuck on, behind, you know, yeah, yeah. The people who go down to the Antarctic bases. A couple of years ago, we had a colleague who went up to the North Pole and an icebreaker. I get to go out on our boat, the Quest. You know, four miles off Penley Point is about as far as okay. I've been. <laughs> well, they say any day on the water is better than a day in the oh, office. Oh, it is. And yeah. you got to meet Princess Anne and, you've, oh, and yeah, you get that. to look at this fabulous organisation. Look, one of the great privileges of being a research scientist is when you cut away, you know, all the nonsense of work, you get paid to play. Yeah, because you Because actually, it. yeah, but it's not just that, because you actually, research is something that's constantly evolving and the people who shape the research are the people who are doing it. Yeah, You know, so obviously you've got to be able to get it funded, you've got to be able to get it published. Mm. But actually you have a control over your destiny as a research scientist that very few other employees in any walk of life have. Yeah, And it's a real privilege. I um, get it completely. I think yeah. that's a really good point. Control over your destiny is actually what yeah. most people would dream of, isn't it? So you're lucky yeah. you've got to play with things you love, yeah. doing great stuff. And apart from Oceanis, mm. what would you want your legacy to be? Firstly, it's not about me, it's about PML. I always set out that we would be looking at having an organisation that enhanced its reputation in the outside world, mm. first and foremost. You know, it's obviously business viable and solvent. Mm. And I think that we had encouraged and brought on a generation of scientists coming through who were much better than I ever was. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, I think it's our destiny as people, yeah. as we get older, to realise there are yeah. newer, talented, more intelligent people who are going to do our job better than we did, but at least you lay the ground for them to be able to do it. One of the reasons I moved out of research science into management and then became chief executive was partly because I was recognising that yeah. you know, there was a whole talent base and skill and people whose knowledge of computers, programming skills and things were far, you know. But you know how to enable it. You've learned those yeah. lessons. So, you know, my job now is to enable an organisation with a generation of people who make a difference to the planet, locally and globally. Wow. That's ultimately what PML's about. Impartial providers of scientific advice to the benefit of mankind. Well, what a fabulous place to leave it and what a fabulous job to have, what a fabulous thing you're doing. I'm so grateful you gave up your time to come and talk to us and a, a good luck with everything at PML. I look forward to Oceanus. I mean, it's unmanned, so I don't suppose I'll get a trip on it, but I'd like to see it, you know. <laughs> and good luck for everything at PML. Professor Icarus Allen, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. In Conversation With is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, helping you go digital and choose the best approach for your business. Westcott's, we're here. Produced by Fresh Air Studios, full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Video content by Mark Stevenson. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. Music